0: Welcome to the Prolific Teaching Ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, Lead Pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. All right, so right now, in the next few minutes, we're going to be breaking every stronghold, you know, erecting your mind against the concept of healing. This is still the healing school, and today we want to tidy up you know theological conundrums the questions that people have. You know, some people ask questions like, um, What about Job? What happened to Job? You know, was God responsible for everything Job went through? Why would God do that? And some people, you know, have settled with that terrible theology that suggests that. God allows terrible things to happen to us just to train us. He trains us with sickness. You know, I think it was Kenneth Hagen who said a lady came to him and said she had cancer, that the Lord gave her cancer to train her spiritually. So he laid hands on her and prayed. He said, Lord, increase the cancer. And she opened her eyes and was like, what kind of prayer is that? And he said, well, if it's from the Lord, and he put it on you so that you can learn. Maybe you need more learning. Why would you want something that is from the Lord? to be cured. Why would you want to treat it if it's from the Lord? Don't treat it at all. You know, learn your lesson very well. You know, we just have these funny ideologies. Every plant, every theological ideology that our Heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted out in the mighty name of Jesus. And we're rooting it out with teaching, not just with prayer. Alright, I'm going to start with a text, very crucial text here, from James 1:17. James 1 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning some translations say variation he doesn't shift shadows he doesn't shift he's not a shape shifter in terms of his integrity who he is you know what he's like he's not light today and darkness tomorrow he's not good today and evil tomorrow he's not kind sometimes he's consistent in his nature and character all right and i've taught on this several times but the simple allusion here is the is the allusion to planetary space when he says god is the father of lights he's likening him to the sun And he says, the sun, like the sun, God does not shift positions. A lot of people were taught growing up that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And maybe for elementary science, maybe when you were in primary school, that was just a good picture, you know, metaphorically to explain, you know, day and night. But as you grow older, you realize the sun does not move at all. I hope you know by now that the sun does not move. What happens is we move. We are the ones moving up. The planet that we're in revolves and rotates. You know, it revolves around the sun and it rotates as it's while, while it's doing so. All right. So actually, we don't have day and night because the sun rises and sets. We have day and night because we are moving and sometimes our planet backs the sun. And so when we back the sun, then we have night. But it, is, it, it, it wasn't as a result of the sun rising or setting. It was as a result of our rotation. And this is a very important analogy when it comes to our theology. Because many times it looks like God, you know, shifts. Whenever it feels like God is inconsistent in his nature or character, the problem is not God. The problem is your position. Because like the earth, we are the one rotating, growing in our understanding of God, his nature, and his character. All right, so take note of that. That's something very important for you to learn. So today, essentially, there's a theological concept for what we're trying to address today. Theologians call it the problem of evil. um, Where people say, if there is a God, why is there evil in the world? You know, and it's a very emotional idea. I remember stumbling on a clip that was trending online. It was an atheist, you know, and he was being interviewed, and the interviewer asked him a question. Asked him and said, if at the end of your life, instead of just transcending into nothingness like like you think the world is about, you find yourself before the pearly gates of heaven, you discover that all that you said about the non-existence of God was false. What are you going to do? He said, I will curse God if I discover that he exists. I was so shocked, but that's what he said. And he said, why, I would challenge him and ask him, why would you permit so much wickedness in the world? Why would God, he says, allow so much evil to thrive? It, he said, it's either there is no God or he's so irresponsible. He talked about a child that was born. And when she was born, insects ate her eyeballs. I mean, ate her eyeballs. You know, why would God stand and watch things like that? So that's the problem of evil. It was a God, why is there so much evil in the world? You know, and there's a lot of explanation. I can spend the whole day talking about this alone. But I'll just be as fast as possible in, in addressing this. God wanted humans to be free moral agents and you cannot be free moral agents except if you have the power to abuse the right that God gave you the right to free will. God wanted us to have to be free moral agents so that He can have an actual relationship with us. if He programmed all of us like our phone, to go to Instagram when he presses it, you know, go to Facebook when he presses it, then we cannot have a relationship with him. We don't have a relationship with our phone, even though our phone does everything we ask it to do, except if, except it's broken, you know, and, and, and all of that. But if we if God was gonna have a relationship with us for love to be love, we must be capable of hate. All right? And so he gave us free will so that we can have. You know, a relationship with us. So it's, and it's that simple. So, a lot of people, you know, just look at that and, you know, they probably expect God to have. I mean, some parents, for instance, have children when they are not ready to. And because they are free moral agents, God is not going to do anything about that. I mean, it's sad, but it's a reality. If God will be involved in our world, we have to pray. That's where prayer comes in. We have to pray. We have to pray. But a lot of people don't know this. And so they just blame God for everything. And I can go on and on to talk about this. But that's that in a nutshell. But So generally speaking, when people have questions like this, there are two things they're missing out. There are two things they're ignorant of. The first is they're ignorant about the person of Satan. You know, do you realize when a lot of people are asking questions like this, Satan never comes up, you know, if there is a God, why do bad things happen? You know, for many people, I mean, it's simple and straightforward. There's a Satan too, there is Satan too. There's a devil too. But for a lot of people, they never involve God, you know, Satan in the equation. They just blame, you know, God for everything. Meanwhile, for most of the things, man is responsible. For the other things... You know, the man is not responsible for Satan, is responsible for you know, but it's just convenient, it's a convenient position to say it's God, you know, who is at fault and all of that. So, many people are usually ignorant of the person of Satan or the existence of Satan, or they choose to ignore the existence of Satan, and then people are usually also ignorant about the fallen state of mankind. Why do bad things happen? Well, because the world is in a fallen state. The Bible says, by one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world and death by sin. The world is fallen. Man's body is not functioning the way it's meant to function. And that's why man has become susceptible to virus. You know, like the pandemic that we're faced with. And that's why the earth also is having natural disasters and all of that. And the earth is in a fallen state something went wrong everything was perfect when god created everything the bible says and he saw that everything was good so you have to understand this so that's that in a nutshell so bear that in mind but don't forget where we started every good gift every perfect gift comes from the father of light with him there is no variableness no shadow of turning you have to believe that as we begin because even all the questions I'm about to answer even if I answer them if you don't believe this fundamentally more questions will arise in future and who knows I just might not be there at the moment to explain it to you so it will help you to just believe God is light in him is no darkness at all he doesn't make people sick he's a good God You need to understand this and believe this. So I'm just going to pick, you know, someone suggested, you know, that I talk about Noah also. And I'm going to do that if we have time. So let's just try to trash out, you know, um, Job, the story of Job, and also Paul's thorn in the flesh. And then if we have the time, we'll delve into the Noah situation. But when you study what happened to Job, you will see that, What happened falls under the same category of what I just talked about. There was, I mean, blatantly the ignorance of about the existence or the activity of Satan in the story of Job, and I'm going to prove it to you, you know. And there was also ignorance about man and his fallen state when it comes to the ignorance of the you know about the existence and the operation of Satan. Let me start by telling you this just in case you're not aware, Job. Is the oldest book of, of the Bible. In fact, if we were going to arrange canon, you know, canon is um, theological jargon for list of books. If we're going to an- arrange the canon according to the years they were written, Job was going to be the first book of the Bible. Here is the reason. Because historically, Job actually lived around the time of Moses. Either before or during the time of Moses, but not after. A lot of people don't know. Listen, this is a very important piece of information. So you need to understand, you see, in, in Bible theology there is something called the development of knowledge. And this is a simple concept that even though God is consistent in his nature and character, but people grew in their understanding of who God was, as he continued to reveal himself and his will. That's a very important concept. For instance, people did not always pray. People did not always pray. Prayer was learned. All right. Prayer I, I, prayer as a system was learned as time went on. The Bible tells us in Genesis that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You do understand? So knowledge began to increase. And one of the things that you know took time for people to understand. Was the existence of Satan, you know, that was one of the ministries of Jesus Christ. Not just to reveal the Father to us, but to expose the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was the first person to cast out devils. And the Bible says, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was the him. So in the ministry of Jesus, we see clearly that sickness is the work of the devil. These are some of the things that we learned you know, in Jesus' ministry, prior to that, a lot of things were veiled. And men in their human understanding just had the propensity, as it is today, to just attribute everything that they couldn't understand. Under the same blanket of a divine power, a divine cause. You know, there's the same mistake many, many people make today. There's an earthquake somewhere, and they say it's an act of God. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? It's not an act of God. And so you see, in the Bible, we learn more about Satan, you know, as time goes on. In Genesis 3, he's called the serpent. And I mean, as a child, you're reading that, you're wondering, oh, just the serpent, you know, and all of that. But when you come to Genesis, when you come to the book of Revelation, now he's called that, He says, there's a reference to him as the serpent, which is the devil. All right, so we see his nature unveiled that was the devil that was the devil many theologians believe there was an actual serpent but definitely under the influence of a demoniacal force this this um, the devil himself do you understand so why was he called serpent? because there was just this veil all right and the nature of satan got clearer as time went on so that's something very important For us to understand, and we are going to understand that more. But in the book of Job, you see this veiled nature of Satan. Also, the Bible says in verse eight of Job chapter one, it says, "Then the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and shuns evil?" So Satan answered and said, "Answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing?" Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, I know you know this part of the story. You know what I discovered? A lot of people who claim to know the story of Job, they only read the first three chapters. They only read the first three chapters and they base their knowledge of the story on just the first three chapters. The book of Job has 42 chapters. 42. But they just read the first three, you know, and then they have an opinion on the whole book based on just those, those, those three chapters. But anyways, Satan comes to God and then God says, Have you seen my servant Job? And... Well, uh, Satan responds, Oh, it's because you're blessing him. Touch what he has and he will curse you to your face. Take note of what the Bible says. The Bible says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay hand on his person. Do you notice what just happened? Satan told God, He says, touch him and he's going to curse you." And God told Satan, you go ahead and touch him. Now, I'm going to talk about that, but, you know, why would God say, go ahead and touch him? I'm going to talk about that. But the first thing you need to realize is it wasn't God who touched Satan. This is so, as simple as this is. It's so important. Satan said, touch him. And God said, well, all that he has is under your power. But even in that God still protected him and said, don't don't touch him." And yeah I know that it looked like that that restriction was lifted later but this is still an important point for you to note. God did not touch job. so all that job experienced was still of the devil. Yes, the edge the hedge around him was lifted you know but it was the devil that touched him. so when people say oh, You know, even Job himself attributed all that he was going through to God. And that's wrong. This is a very important place to begin. Let's begin to look at this now. Look at what Job said. In Job 19.21, Job said this. He said, have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy, for God's hand has struck me. You see the problem? Same problem a lot of people have today. Job said it was God that struck him. And we know it was the devil. It was the devil. Verse 2. Verse 22. Why do you persecute me as God does? His friends, you know, were trying to figure out the situation. And he says, why are you persecuting me as God does? God is persecuting me. He says, will you not get enough of my flesh? Now look at verse 6 of chapter 19. Verse 6 of chapter 19. Job says this. He says, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. He says, God is doing wrong. God is doing wrong. He has wronged me and caught me in his net. He said, I am right and God is wrong. There's a lot to uncover from this. In verse 5, he says, if you really want to appear superior to me, and you want to disgrace me as evidence against me, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. Just imagine that. So the people, his friends, who were also wrong, were saying, oh, you must have done something for all these things to be happening to you. And he's saying, oh, you're just trying to prove that you're better than I am. You know, they turned it to a morality conquest. And then he said, it is God who is wrong. I am right and God is wrong. See, Revelation was too limited at the time. But one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, was very perturbed by what Job said. He said, why would you talk like this? In chapter 22, verse 21, he said, come to terms with God and be at peace. In this way, good will come to you. He said, why, why would you? Why would you talk like this? Even though he was wrong in the way he went about it, Job's friends also thought it was God who was punishing Job. I'm just pointing out the first point to you. Ignorant about Satan and his activity. Job thought it was God. His friends thought it was God. At least the friends were even better than Job, you know, you know to think that he had, Job had done something to warrant everything. You know, but they were both wrong in thinking it was God. This is the first major problem when we have, you know, when we have to deal with the evil that the world is faced with. A lot of people just tend to blame God for everything. And Satan was there attacking Job and he was total, totally ignorant about it. So this is something important for you. Isn't it fascinating that in all of this, Job had said no prayer? Job said no prayer. Job said no prayer. Do you notice it was when Job prayed that everything ended? He might have been praying for his friends and all of that. But it was when he prayed that everything ended. How else do you resist the devil? So just lessons. he was just there playing the blame game. I am right and God is wrong. You know, which leads me to the next point. He was ignorant about his fallen state and the state, fallen state of the world. Job was a very self-righteous man. You know, in fact, it might be too early, you know, to tell you this, but I can tell you categorically, you know, that what God said about him, oh, an upright man in Job 1.8, appeared to be sarcasm. Because First of all, with our full canon, we have the full complete Bible. We know that nobody, you know, could be righteous before God by his own merits. Righteous enough to say, challenge God and say, I've not done any wrong. But Job felt otherwise. He wasn't aware of his fallen state and the implications thereof. And he just thought he could match up with God in terms of morality or tick all the boxes. He had this strong self-righteous consciousness. Look at Job 13.15 for instance. In Job 13.15 These are verses that we've read out of context and we thought they were good. Because we didn't understand the context. In Job 13.15 He says, Even if God kills me, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. First of all, that's where people stop when they are quoting this verse. They just say, though it's lame yet, will I trust it? But the verse is not done yet. And I'm going to go to the other part. But first, don't forget where we started. It wasn't God who was doing it. But Job had concluded it was God. Not only had he concluded it was God, he was playing, you know, the righteous part, you know, the righteous role and saying, God is wrong, I'm right but well, even if he slays me I will still trust him, he's being wicked for no reason, I'm a righteous man but if he chooses to behave this way, I will still trust in him, and see what he says next, I will still defend my ways before him, meaning I'm nobody can tell me I'm wrong, I've done wrong I will defend my ways before him, as far as this matter is concerned, God is on the wrong can you imagine this this is incredible he slays me well well no problem because you're God nobody can talk a bee well go on and do what you want but even if you continue to do evil I will still do good I will still trust you you know a lot of people try to talk like this and they think it makes them devout people but it just makes you ignorant in fact after the first three chapters where the Bible tells us about Job and you know the, the how the plagues came about, the next 40 chapters thereabout was Job essentially defending himself. His friend saying, Calm down, you must have done something, and Job saying, I'm not, I'm not wrong. I did nothing wrong. You know, so it was call and response, attack and defense consistently. Job was defending is What he said he would do is what he did throughout the book. I would defend my ways before him. Job's friend, Bill Dad, you know, there were, there were three friends with him. One of them, you know, in Job 25 verse 4, he, 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 was, he was angry about all the statements and bragging that Job was making. And in Job 25 verse 4, he said, how can a person born of a woman be pure? This guy... You know, he didn't even have the books of Paul, but he knew what Job was saying was wrong. How can you brag like this? Nobody born of a woman is pure. But Job continued in his bragging. In Job chapter 27, from verse 1 to 6, the Bible says Job continued in his discourse saying, from verse 1, Job continued his discourse saying, As God lives, who has deprived me of justice, see what he's saying. You know some of you who never really studied this book you probably just thought Job was some saint and God just kept treating him poorly but look at what he said how can you how can you talk like this as god lives who has deprived me justice and the almighty who has made me bitter you know when you're reading this you would think he's talking about his mates you know he said god has made me bitter <laughs> He said, as long as there is breath, as breath is still in me, and the breath of, from God remains in my nostrils, my lips will not speak unjustly, my tongue will not utter deceit. Look, look at that. He says, God has made me bitter. He has deprived me of justice, but I, I will still keep my integrity. I won't speak the wrong thing. I won't act the wrong way, you know. And then he, he's telling the people who were who telling him, listen, you are not as righteous as you say. Admit your folly. He's telling them, I will never affirm your right. I will maintain my own integrity till I die. Meaning, I'm not going to shift my position. You know, I'm righteous and God is the one attacking me. God has sinned. This is terrible, you see. Look at verse 6. I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. What do you think about this? Can you imagine what Job be saying? I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. <laughs> in fact, you know, in one of the verses he said, I wish I could bring God to court so that we can act argue this thing out, you know, and I will defend myself. He's so sure that if God, you know, was brought to a modern day court, you know, he he, he will be held guilty. He'll be found guilty. And that's so incredible. Chapter 19 from verse 1. Chapter 19 from verse 1. Job is still talking. Let's read from verse 2. He says, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? You have humiliated me 10 times now and mistreated me without shame. He's talking to his friends. He says, even if it is true that I have sinned, my mistake concerns only me. Now, now so this guy, so his friends kept telling him, listen, guy, you can't talk, to, talk about God like this. If you have an issue with God, clearly you are in the wrong. And he's angry that they are talking like that. He said, it's none of your business you just want to prove that you're superior to me and, you know, you want to use my disgrace as evidence against me. Verse 6, it says, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. It is God. <laughs> God is wrong. Stop all these ones you guys are saying. God is wrong. And so in verse 32, everybody, you know, I want you to open verse 32, verse 1. This is a very important Aspect of this. Verse 32, verse chapter 32, verse 1. It says, so these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Listen, so you see, the integrity of Job was clear in the Bible. It is clear who Job was. He was a self-righteous man. In fact, the Bible says the three friends stopped answering him because it was clear at that point he was righteous in his eyes you know so much for you know the devout innocent job you know that everybody who only read the first three chapters of the book saw him to be but the bible says he was righteous in his own eyes now there was a fourth friend who had actually been quiet all through this while he was quiet because he was younger And, you know, it's just like an African culture. When elderly people are talking, you don't want to interrupt. But now he wants to speak. His name is Elihu. All right. And now he's speaking because the older people who were supposed to address the situation, they they kept saying rubbish. So now Elihu wants to speak. Pay attention to this. So verse 2 of chapter 32. It says, Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, and of the family of Ram was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. So this is the story of Job consistently. If you don't know this about Job, you don't know Job. You don't know the story. He justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had not found they had found no answer and yet condemned Job. So they, they were doing two things wrong. They, you know, they, they just kept condemning Job and telling Job, oh, for you to be going through all that you're going through, you must have sinned, you must have sinned, which was wrong. All right? It's still a wrong idea to just assume that someone is going through trouble because he did something wrong. It's a terrible concept that people have throughout the Bible you see that the guy who was born blind, you know, the disciples wanted to know who sinned. Why are human beings like this? A lot of people trying to make sense of the coronavirus pandemic are coming up with different ideologies. You know, some say the Muslims say that the Muslims are exonerated, you know, it is only the rest of the world, you know, I read a report like that, you know, some say Everybody is just trying to say that, okay, some people are going through this because of something they did. And make no mistake. Going, you know, going against, you know, the, the will of God consistently can open the edge just like Job, you know, to the enemy and all of that. But that's not the point here. The point here is simply this. The earth is falling. And there isn't always a reason for bad things that happen. Bad things happen because we're in a fallen world. You have to understand this. This is so important. The same thing with Paul, you know, um, um, a serpent fastened itself around his arm and people were like, oh, he has sinned. He must be a sinner. Why do people think like this? And then, you is people who, who don't have a firm conviction in the word of God, you notice they're so inconsistent in their convictions. The same people, when the serpent beats paul and nothing happened they now said oh he's a man of god same story same moment so quit listen in this coronavirus pandemic stop trying to come up with philosophy some people are saying oh because um america has done this you know looking for listen if you know biblical prophecy well you already know that things are going to get worse if you think this is the worst plague, the world has seen, you are not a good Bible student. <laughs> All right. So we're just warming up. Only that the children of God are going to be out of here by then. Do you understand? According to biblical prophecy. But quit trying to, you know, use your human understanding to identify what's wrong. So we're not just blame, this is not blame game here. But also. He was angry, Elihu was angry at Job's friends because they couldn't tell Job, you know, what he had really do- done. Verse 4, he's talking. It says, now because they were years older than he, Elihu waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three, three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barachel, answered. He said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak. <laughs> Elihu is shading them. He said, I kept quiet. You guys are old, you know, older in age. And I was just like, ah, three adults here. One should be able to <laughs> figure this out. He said, I said, age should speak. A multitude of years should teach wisdom. But this is what he discovered. Verse 8, it says, But there is a spirit in man. You know that text that we quote, the ones even we use for example? (laughs) That really doesn't concern example. You know, this was a live who talking. It says, But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise. This is a reality in our world. Great men are not always wise nor do aged always have understanding in justice he says therefore listen to me ha <laughs> ha so Elihu listen you have to understand at the time these guys were talking there was no bible don't blame them for their ignorance we're talking about people who lived even before the law of Moses existed so if they were going to have any proper understanding about God it was going to have to be by inspiration And now Elihu is going to bail them out by inspiration. All right. The rest had been guessing. Oh, if bad things are happening to you, Job, you must have done something. But now he's about to speak by inspiration. Verse 18. It says, for I'm full of words. The spirit within me compels me. He's talking by inspiration. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskin. He says I will speak I will find my relief I must open my lips and answer you know he said all of that look at chapter 3 verse 8 now he's he's addressing Job he says surely you have spoken in my hearing for I've heard the sound of your words saying I am pure without transgression this is a summary of what Job was saying he said Job this is he's saying Job said I am pure without transgression I'm innocent and there is no iniquity in me He says yet he finds occasion against me. This is what Job is saying to God. I am pure. I am innocent. But God finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks. He watches all my path. Look. In this you are not righteous. This is the important thing you must take from this. Eli who challenges him by inspiration. The first thing he says is, You are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than you. You may have thought he's your mate by saying, bring him to court. Let's present the evidence. You are not righteous, and God is greater than you. Verse 14. Elihu, by inspiration, is about to tell Job what happened. He says, for God may speak in one way or in another, yet men may not perceive it. He's telling Job that the evil he faced could have been averted. God tried to warn him and he didn't hear. He said, God may speak in one way or yet in another, yet man may not perceive it. In the dream of the night, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while they are slumming in bed, he opens the ears of man and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed. So listen, Job had aired. God wanted to redirect his step. Can I tell you something? If you are following the the genealogy I'm giving you, the time in which Job existed, you realize this wasn't too far from Abraham's time. And there was a similar story. In fact, many historians and theologians believe that Elihu is making reference to Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 20. Do you remember Abimelech? Abimelech was on his own. Abraham was coming to Abimelech's region. And he told Sarah. He said, I need you to lie that you are my sister. Which was not exactly a lie. But you know, they were not telling all the truth. Which is still a lie. Because Sarah was his half-sister. He said, if I tell them that you are my wife, they will kill me and marry you. So, let's lie. So, Abimelech in his innocence said, oh, she's a sister. I'd like to have her. And Abraham, I mean, because he had no choice. He feared for his life. Took Sarah into his bosom now Abraham is a prophet you know how special that lineage was and Abimelech was about to bring wrath on himself by what he had done what did God do in the dream of the night God comes to Abimelech and says hey boy you're about to make a mistake if you go if you tell this route you are going to die (laughs) And so Abimelech was, you know, he he replied and said, Oh, will God destroy a righteous nation? I didn't know. And God said, because I knew you did this in the innocence of your heart, that's why I've warned you. Now return the man's wife. This is what Elihu is saying. When you're about to make a mistake, God will correct you. And so he's insinuating that God indeed tried to correct Job. But he continued... Now, what was Job saying? Very clear. Self-righteousness. All the sacrifices that he was doing, he was doing it out of self-righteousness. He felt that, you know, in the whole world, he was the one who pleases God. This is a typical works-consciousness story of people who think that because of what they do, God is obligated... By his response, you can tell that he trusted in his righteousness to feel that... You know, the people of God, and um, God was obligated to keep blessing him just because of what he does. And God had tried to correct him about this. And because he continued in his rebellion, all right, the righteous thing for God to do was to remove that edge. Because the real question is, how could he continue so much in rebellion? There's still an edge around him. He, he was the one, you know, who necessitated that edge to be removed. Because when you continue consistently in rebellion like that, I mean, it's going to lead to sin. It's going to, lead to expose you to attacks of the enemy. Are you, are you getting the full context now? So this is what is happening here. All right, let me just speed up as fast as I can. He says, so God opens his ears in the night, you know, to speak to him, to seal instructions, verse 17, in order to turn man from his deed and to conceal pride from him. This was um, Job's problem, pride. He keeps back his soul from the pits and his life from perishing by the sword. God tried to keep Job from this. Try to keep Job from this. But when you don't listen, you know, then trouble begins. All right? If I stop here, I believe this is sufficient. There's still so much to say. If you're still in doubt about maybe Job's righteousness status, look at what the Bible says in chapter 47, from verse 7 to 9. Chapter 47, from verse, did I say 47? 34, I beg your pardon. Chapter 34 from verse 7 to 9. It says, What man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water? <laughs> he said Job was a scorner. A scorner. He goeth in the company of the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men. You see? I mean, isn't this interesting? So a lot of people, they just read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and they say, Oh, we know Job. Job was righteous and God did him wrong. And God allowed the devil, you know, to attack him. But that's not true. Verse 9, For he had said, It profited a man nothing that he should delight himself in God. This was Job. So he went on in his rebellion, but because of all the sacrifices, he thought that God was still obligated to keep blessing him. You see that? Just like some people who do all the wrong things in the world, you know, some would even still make money and give God glory, give a tenth to church. <laughs> you know, Job was that kind of fellow. Verse 37 of chapter 34, verse 37, he said, for he has, he has added rebellion unto his sin and clapped his hands amongst us and multiplied his words against God. So as if he had not done wrong enough, when he did wrong, you know, and bad things started happening. He still had the audacity to challenge God for that. A few things you need to know. Number one, the devil can no longer accuse us. Can I tell you something? Even if you sin, and you, as a child of God with the righteousness of God in Christ, you shouldn't go on perpetually in sin. But you have to understand the conversation such as happened in the time of Job, Cannot keep happening. God and Satan have no such conversations in our day. You need to, this is a very crucial aspect. Because now it seems, oh, justified. Oh, now I understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. I sinned. God tried to warn me. I didn't hear. So he opened the edge for Satan to. No! Give no place to the devil. Because there is something very important for you to know as a difference between you and Job. Jesus has died. He died for your sins. He paid the price for your sins. God is never going to entertain any accusation from the devil. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. This is so important. So that's one thing for you to know. And unlike Job, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. See, the sacrifice of Christ has made all the difference. Let me show you something interesting. Even in the book of Job, you know, we see a foretaste, a foreshadow of Christ and what he was going to come and do. In chapter 33, you know, verse 22, when Elihu was telling Job what had, what had happened, or oh, in the dream of the night, he probably warned you, you know, and all of that. He said, yes, He saw draws near the pit and his life from the executioners. Verse 33, if there is a messenger from God... A mediator, one amongst a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then God will be gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down the pit, for I have found a ransom. Oh, thank you, Lord. So Elihu was saying, Oh, if only there was a mediator, if only there was a ransom. Job, what happened to you would not have happened. Well, now we no longer say, If only. There is a ransom. We have a mediator. Hallelujah. This was a foreshadow of Christ and what he was going to do. So this is why what happened to Job cannot happen to you. Can I tell you something? When you see things going wrong in your life, don't fold your arms and say, Oh, God allowed it just like he allowed Job. No, it's the devil. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to God If you do wrong You know Trash that out with God know it. I call it God gut, God's guilt Alright Knowing that Because you're, you're a righteous person You have a righteous nature You shouldn't have done it So you can feel bad for it But you still have God's Audacity Knowing that you are still The righteousness of God in Christ Handle the devil Kick him out of your house Alright Don't give him a foothold because even your inadequacies, you, you can't hold on to them because of the blood of Jesus. This is important. So even Job, Elihu said, if he had if God had found a ransom, a mediator, his life would have been spared. Well, God has a ransom for us. Christ has ransomed us for by his blood. So listen, never use Job. And the story as an excuse to allow the devil to plunder you. Never. Don't give place to the devil at all. You know, another story that a lot of people just cling on to. A lot of people just bring up these things as an excuse. You know, really. Just looking for an explanation to justify, you know, the activity of Satan in their life. Instead of building their faith to stand against these things. So they say, Paul's done in the flesh. I want to read that to you. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, Second Corinthians chapter twelve, from verse seven. Thank you, dear Jesus. Oh, Father, we adore you. We bless your name. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, from verse seven, it says, "Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. You know, so now you're like, some people are, you know, their interpretation of this is Paul, you know, was functioning in high revelation of the word and God wanted to humble him. Have you heard people talk like that? God is trying to humble me. And so, you know, they say God made Paul sick. You know, just two weeks ago, someone still, you know, Commented on one of my posts and said, Remember Paul's thought in the flesh. And, you know, I, I just felt sorry. I just felt sorry. This is so important. This is not just semantics. Because when you excuse sickness and pain, the devil has a free day in your life. But when you discover, you know, that God is not behind it, you expose Satan and you can kick him out. Alright, so Paul says, for this I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me and he said unto me my grace is sufficient for thee my strength is made perfect in your weakness most gladly therefore I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ might be rest upon me, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, you know a lot of people say infirmities, he was sick and he prayed three times God refused to heal him If Paul could be sick like this, who are we? (laughs) He said, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For I am weak, then I am strong. And a lot of people have theologized with this. But this is simple, straightforward. Time is far spent. I'm not going to spend time on this. This was a simple Old Testament imagery, thorn in the flesh. Don't assume you know what thorn in the flesh is. Some have said it was boiled, Some, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, don't assume you know what it is. Just be diligent, read it up. And it was a common imagery. Look at look at Numbers chapter thirty-three verse fifty-five, Numbers thirty-three verse fifty-five you know, God used this imagery time and again for the children of Israel you need to understand Paul did not coin that phrase himself, thorn in the flesh it was God who used it first and so he was using a phraseology that was already popular in the Old Testament and God told the children of Israel, you know When you get to the promised land, don't cohabitate with the Amalekites and all these pagan people. Drive them out. I wish I had enough time to explain why. You know, but drive them out. And if you don't drive them out, he said this is what will happen. Look at Numbers 33 verse 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain shall be pricks thorns in your eyes, thorns in your side, and they shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Meaning they are going to become formidable, they are going to be your enemies and they will fight you. So thorn in the side was figure of speech for persecution. Persecution, not sickness, persecution. Look at Joshua chapter 23 verse 13. Joshua 23 verse 13 It says "Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of the nations from before you but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord had given you. Again persecution referring to Nations, heathen nations, tormenting and oppressing. Judges chapter two verse three. Judges chapter two verse three. It says, "Wherefore I said, I will not drive them out from before you; they shall be thorns in your sides, and their god shall be a snare unto you." Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every truth shall be established. I just, you know, so. Thorn in your side, thorn in your flesh, you know, th- th- snare in your eyes or whatever the, the, the figure of speech is, is for persecution. God never responded to someone crying out for healing this way, to say, hey, my strength is made perfect in your way. What is the meaning? What's that supposed to mean? You know, that's inconsistent with the nature of God. And people will just hang on to this that they don't understand. I mean, in the clear scenarios of Jesus in his earthly ministry, he never turned anyone down who asked for healing. But they just sit on the side, you know, people like mystery. And this must stop. Because that's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't plague people with sickness to make them grow spiritually. He doesn't do that. Every tree, every false doctrine on this that my heavenly Father has not planted, must be uprooted. In Jesus' name, you know. So I mean, and so when you follow the context of what Paul was saying to be clear what he was saying, the Bible says in Second Timothy chapter three verse twelve. 2 Timothy three twelve. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, and that's why. God said, you you can't pray for the persecution to stop. It comes with a package. Instead, he replies, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that's what happened in Jesus' case too, when he was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. For the cup to pass over him, instead he was strengthened. And that's what happened to Paul. So it it wasn't sickness, for crying out loud, for Christ's sake. It wasn't sickness. All right? Chapter 11, verse 24. The chapter, I mean, 2 Corinthians 11. This is the chapter just before chapter 12 that talks about all of this. It will help you understand the context. He, Paul talked about all the persecution he faced. He says, of the Jews, five times received I forty strokes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day in the deep, in joining's often, and perils of water, in perils of robbers, in uh, verse 27, in weariness, in painfulness, and watchings and hunger, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh unto me daily, the care of the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is offended? So now he's what he calls weakness was in reference to persecution. And if I must glory, I must glory in the things that concern my infirmities. When he talked about the infirmity, here he was not talking about sickness. He was talking about persecution. And so when in chapter 12, in verse 10, he now talked about weakness and infirmity. He wasn't talking about sickness. He was talking about persecution. And that's why he said, For when I am weak, then I am strong. His weakness was not by sickness, but by persecution. Please, lay this matter to rest once and for all. God did not make Paul sick and did not permit sickness to teach him a lesson. No, it was persecution. But hey, he's a good God. He's not the reason... That relative of yours died. He's not the reason anyone you know is sick. He's always willing and able, ready to heal. So if you're sick, this is what I want you to do today. I want you to thank him for his goodness. Now that the wrong theology is out of the way, thank him for his goodness. And I want to tell you prophetically, as you do so, The power of God is going to hit you right there. Just, you're going to thank Him for your healing. The power of God is going to hit you and you're going to recover. You know what, let me give you a few minutes to do that. Just thank Him. Thank Him right now. Pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 809 Nine nine six seven thousand blessings.